0: today we are in revelation chapter 2 verse 1 to 7 the first of the seven letters to the churches Um, we've been working our way we just take one book of the bible at a time work through it verse by verse and you happen to have joined us on this particular sunday uh, on the letter to the church at ephesus so in honor of god's word would you stand with me as i read this passage revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know... You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. You can be seated. So we are beginning to look at these letters to the churches in Asia Minor which is uh, the area that we now call Turkey. And the letters are, are historical. They're addressing a ch- churches that actually were in that region of the world at that particular time that had these particular uh, situations that are addressed, but they're also timeless. And that's because the heart of man never changes. We have the same problems they had back then, and we'll see that as we go through the letters. We have the same need to be zealous for the gospel, to reject false teaching, and to live in a manner that corresponds to the gospel. It may help for us to begin each letter by thinking in our mind's eye of Jesus standing in our midst, addressing us through each letter that we look at. While some commendations will apply, some words of correction will also apply to us. So let us receive the promised blessing to those who hear and keep the words this morning. Verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The seven churches are actually churches that literally were there in Turkey. They're they're named in a circular route as if one were carrying the letters going from one to the next, delivering each letter. Each introduction begins with the same wording, to the angel of the church in, and then it names the city, the next city on the route. And then it it goes on to give a part of the description of Jesus that we saw in the first chapter. I think that in this case, um, it's my personal opinion, not uh, many uh, commentators believe this, and it's not one of those issues that's worth uh, contending over. But that when it talks about angels here, it should be translated messengers. The word is angelos. In Greek, it means messenger. And it came to mean angels as well because angels were messengers. Um, So I think it's referring to the one who would read the letter that week, which in the church at that time was referred to as the angelos. So I think the... What, John is, what Jesus is saying to John is this letter is to go to the one who will read that morning in those particular churches. After all, an angel wouldn't need John to write it down, would he? Nevertheless, the word is only used as a heavenly being in the rest of Scripture. So my opinion may be just an opinion. Still, it's an opinion that the letter addressed to the elder or messenger that would present the message on the Lord's day. And from Acts chapter 20, we realize or we read about the numerous elders that were in Ephesus. Paul asked them all to come down to Miletus as he met with what he thought was the last time he would meet with them. Ephesus was a city, that is estimated to have a population of as high as half a million people. The Colosseum where Aristarchus and Gaius were, were tried could seat 25,000 people. It was a port city, though the city itself was located three miles up the Caester River. And to get from the port to the city, uh, those three miles, you would walk through a co- covered colonnaded pathway. Um, very regal. Now, today, um, it's even three miles further to get to the city because of these, uh, the silt that came down the Caister River and, and moved the, uh, the, the landmass further out. The image of Diana, um, which was worshipped, also called Artemis, was the, the center of the city, the, the focal point of the city. And it was a many-breasted idol. And the worship in that temple was so wild and indulgent with its thousands of temple prostitutes that the philosopher Heraclitus declared that those who lived in Ephesus could not help but weep over the immorality in the city. It wasn't the capital, Pergamum, which is the next letter, had that honor but the governor lived in Ephesus because it was a much more regal city and it was the largest city in the region. The New Testament tells us that Aquila and Priscilla were the founders of the church of Ephesus and then later they were joined by that eloquent speaker, Apollos. And the apostle Paul had been through the city on his second missionary trip but it was his third missionary trip in which he spent three years there. And the reason that he spent so much time there was because it was a central point through which trade went. And the scripture says that all Asia heard the word of God because of what Paul, the time that Paul spent there in Ephesus. He, he spent so much time there, not only because of the spread of the gospel, but I believe that he saw the potential there in the the eldership and in the growth of the church. This letter comes from Jesus about four decades after they last last saw the apostle Paul. And I would hope that Paul's admonitions and all his efforts to to ground them and make them a solid center for the gospel um, would have held up uh, for four decades. But the church already needed some correction from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold lampstands. We must consider why Jesus used this specific um, description of himself for this church. Each church has something of the description of Jesus we saw in the first chapter applied to it. And if you recall, the seven stars are the messengers of the seven churches. They are, as the Greek implies, firmly in God's hand. They will faithfully convey the letter with the anointing that comes from the Lord's grip on them. That's an incentive to listen carefully. You know, if the hearers of the letter were hearing this in Greek, they would have realized that, oh, I better pay attention to this. Because not only did Jesus give it directly to send to be delivered here at this congregation at this time but the messenger that's relaying it is firmly gripped in God's hand I take great comfort from that thought without the hand of the Lord on the speaker we're just another club without the anointed anointing and the hearts prepared by the Holy Spirit we're just wasting our time or worse, we're talking about the opinions of man as God's instruction. And that's why pastors must teach and preach the word of God and not self-help ideas. The lampstands, Jesus said, are the churches, and they are golden. Everything in the holy place of the tabernacle that God instructed the Israelites to build was In in the inner part was constructed by gold because it was to be used exclusively for the service of God by the priests. So gold represented holiness or sanctification. The inner room's walls were covered in gold, as was the table of showbread and the altar of incense. The gathering of believers to worship is to be a gathering of priests whose lives are to be dedicated to the service of God. You know, in in 1 Peter 2, 9, he calls us a royal priesthood. Do you think of yourself as a priest? That's how God thinks of us. As someone who introduces us, uh, who we introduce others to God, a go-between between God and man until they have their own personal relationship. Whatever we do should be done for the glory of God. Whatever our occupation, we should do it to the best of our ability with integrity as service to the Lord. The difference between believers and those who have not come to faith is the motivation of our lives, not the occupations in which we're employed. We're to show the world what that occupation looks like if Jesus were doing it. You know, Jesus was a builder. Uh, scripture says a carpenter, but the word in Greek, "tekton" is a builder. He probably worked mostly with stone. But Do you think he wasn't serving the Lord the first 30 years of his life? Of course he was serving his Father in heaven by doing his work as unto him for his glory. Whatever our occupation, we should be doing it for the glory of God. Someone suggested that over Jesus' carpentry shop hung a sign, my yokes fit best. It's likely that more than half the believers in this church in Ephesus were slaves. They had but a few hours in which they could listen to Paul teach. And Paul taught them to serve their masters as if they were serving the Lord. We serve the Lord when we do what we do in such a way as to glorify God. And Jesus walks among the lampstands. Jesus walks among us. Just as he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, he walks among the churches today. And this is why these letters bring both praise and rebuke. He sees not only what we see, but he sees behind it to the heart that motivates the actions. The heart is the major focus of this letter. How it should sober us to know that Jesus walks among us. What does he see when he looks into our hearts? What's motivating us? What's the purpose behind our actions? My computer froze. One of the turning points in my life was when I was 16. Um, I lived close to where I live now in Oak Creek Canyon, and a group of young boys, we were all young teenagers, we were trying to study the Bible. We, uh, I went to a church just a few blocks from here that's a restaurant now, And there wasn't anybody that wanted to disciple us or uh, there was no youth group. So we boys just got together and we read the Bible and we talked about what we thought it might mean. And one night we came across a passage. I think it was the fruits of the flesh. And we were so convicted that we were more like the fruits of the flesh than the fruits of the spirit that we were really asking each other, what do we do? How do we change? And so we decided to stop and just pray and ask God, God, please help us. Help us be more like the fruits of the spirit than the fruits of the flesh. And when we did, it, I can't really describe it, but it was like Jesus walked in the room And all of us just broke down in tears. I mean, macho teenage boys, you know, but we're all crying like babies. Conviction, joy, peace, feeling that we're loved. And we were never the same. Jesus walks among us. Sometimes we sense it. Most of the time we don't. But I think we should picture him walking the aisle this morning during the sermon, looking into our hearts because that's what he does. That's what this passage is declaring Jesus does. There's a subtle error that can creep in when we focus on physical service though. It it can become a goal and it can replace a heart relationship with Christ that produces transformed attitude which then affects the actions. We can get it backwards. We can think, well, if I just take 15 minutes every morning and read my Bible and pray for five minutes and ask Jesus to bless my day, it's all good. And I do that routine every day, so I must be holy. But what's going on in the heart during the day I often hear people repeating the error that if you do a certain thing, then you have life. Like if you go out and tell people the Romans wrote on the street, you have life. Or or if you sing praise songs all the time, you have life. Or if you pray for three hours in the morning, you have life. Jesus said that the words he speaks to us are spirit and they are life. And out of that life flows the unique actions at the Spirit's leading, not rote performance or routines that substitute for life. Rote performance without the Spirit is death. It's just the letter. Be filled with the Spirit, the Scripture says. Get in the Word and let the Word get in you. And Wait for the Lord. Listen to what happened to this church with such a rich spiritual history. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Jesus begins telling them he knows their good deeds. He knows how hard we work to bring glory to God in our occupations and how we strive to help others and how we patiently endure through the difficulties of life in this fallen word. And the word toil here, by the way, um, uh, may be better translated as working to the point of exhaustion. And when I read this, I think how easy our lives are in comparison to theirs. May God help us be as dedicated as they were. And Jesus never said it would be easy. He never made it easy to follow him. But I would add that the world is not any easier. Satan will tell you it is, but even the people that think they have it all together tend to end up empty and depressed. The ones at the top, disillusioned by the world's pleasure, are often those who take their own lives. Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. And when you're walking in him, yoked to him, relying on his strength, he makes your burden lighter. He makes it a joy to serve. This verse encourages me, and I hope it encourages you too. He knows your work and toil and patient endurance. The one who matters knows. You know, it really doesn't matter if anybody else does. Sometimes we'd like people to think highly of us, but all that really matters is what Jesus thinks. That world may, the world may not know, but friend, if you have been going Giving your all for Jesus, Jesus knows. Endure. The hard work and the faithfulness don't go unnoticed by him, and you are laying up treasure in heaven. He also knows how they could not bear with evil false apostles. Now, this isn't speaking of the 12. The word apostle means official representative. There were those who took that title upon themselves, ambassadors from God, they tried to preach another gospel to the Ephesians, but the Ephesians tested them and found them to be false. They didn't live what they preached and what they preached didn't line up with the apostles' doctrine. Some of them proclaimed a religion of works, of, of just keeping the law. Trust in Jesus, they say, but, but keep the law. My computer's not being cooperative. me switch to paper. That's why I always bring a paper back up. And this was a fulfillment of, of God's prediction through the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 when when Paul met with the elders of Ephesus. He said, after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Salvation is Jesus plus nothing. If Jesus is in you, the spirit will cause you to desire good and to lead you into God's plan for your life that glorifies him. The law orders good things, but without the spirit, they're meaningless without the heart behind it. Test those who proclaim to bring you direction. The Lord Jesus was holding the star in his hand, not the false apostles. Jesus commends those who test the messengers with the word of God. Verse three, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, you have not grown weary. Once again, Jesus mentions their patient endurance. This is the second mention of it if you think our city is bad Ephesus would make this town look like Saintville there are times in our Christian walk when we just need to endure for his name's sake that means representing Jesus to the community by the way that we live there's so many church splits ungodly Christian businesses bad example partly because of the abundance of people who label themselves as Christians without accepting Jesus as the Lord of their lives. Christians are supposed to be, the word means, little Christ, or examples of Christ. They're to re- represent his love and his grace and his mercy, as well as his attitudes toward evil and false teachings. In Roman cities, if you didn't pay homage to the town god or the guild god or the market god, you were picked out for any reason of of sickness or calamity. You were kicked out of the trade guild. You might be denied use at the community well. And when someone accused you of doing wrong, you were guilty because you're a Christian. Imagine the patient bearing up of the Ephesians. What do we have to complain about? They did not grow weary under all that testing. The Ephesians had learned to take it. Verse four, but I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. They were doing good things. They were testing the false teachers. They were bearing up under the bigotry of the community, but they lost the very reason for which they were doing it. Life had become an effort of the flesh instead of being empowered by the Spirit. Instead of flowing, the life flowing out of love for Jesus and his life in them, it became doing the right thing. They were going through the motions, but the motions were not directed by a passionate relationship with the one who died in their place and was now gloriously alive and walking among them. He was walking in their midst, and they could no longer see him with eyes of faith. Those glowing bronze feet have nail holes, but they quit noticing. Communion was just another ritual, a familiar ceremony that they were obligated to do, not out of a heart overwhelmed by what Jesus had done for them. The love they had at first was the love they saw that saw Jesus' love for them displayed on the cross. And despite their prior indulgence in the wickedness of Ephesus, Jesus called them out and chose them to be his bride. Just like he called Israel out of Egypt, he clothed them in his righteousness and called them to be his special messengers to those in dark Ephesus. The difference his life and love makes in them. It was so merciful and gracious, a calling that they could hardly imagine such love could be true. They embraced it and it transformed them, but that was years ago. Passionate response to the spirit became actions, actions turned into routines. Love waned to mere appreciation and waned even further to mere ritual. The fire of passion for the Lord must be stoked by time waiting upon him in his word with worship and praise, or it will fade. The world, the flesh, and the devil will throw water on that white-hot flame at every opportunity, and only when it's white-hot will that water turn into steam before it hits the flames. That's why the great command is not work it is passion to love the Lord your God with your all they had so focused on correct teaching that they were abandoning their love for God and for one another because love for God and one love for one another always go together verse 5 Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember the time in your life when you are most thrilled to be in prayer, excited at any chance to worship the Lord with the family of God. If you're not loving God as much or more than you ever have before, you're going backward. You haven't been stoking that fire by being with him. You've put yourself first and him second, and that makes everything upside down. You put yourself first. Notice that Jesus commended them for their works, but now tells them to do the works that they did at first. They were doing the right things, but not like the works they did at first. For those who, First works were done from the heart, repent. I I think sometimes today we misinterpret the word repent as just to say, I'm sorry, I apologize. But the Greek implies a sharp break with evil, a sudden change that continues. Do the works you did at first, which was to see your true condition and repent and let his grace and mercy wash you clean and light a new fire in your heart. Quit playing the Lord of your life and put him back on the throne in your heart. Love him with your all because he gave you his all. If we do not, the church will no longer be in our town. Somewhere in history, the passion for Jesus in these churches of Asia Minor ceased to exist, except for a couple. When will the church in our town die? May our answer ever be not on our watch or that of our spiritual children, amen? We must warn the next generation of believers. We must set an example for them and encouraged them. Verse six, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now in a later letter, we'll get into more into this, but um, there's really little historical evidence of exactly what the group taught. If writing of the early church father Arrhenius is correct, they lived lives of unrestrained indulgence. Clement of Alexandria added that the Nicolaitans abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. In the letter to Pergamum, the teaching was connected with Balaam's teaching that led Israel astray, which was probably referring to the time that the Moabite women led the Israelite men into idolatry and then into sexual sin, which God responded to with the plague. They took Christian liberty to an extreme, even violating God's moral laws. In a town that had such problem with immorality, it would have been a tempting doctrine. The doctrine is alive and as destructive today. Do what you will. God loves you, they say, and he wants you to enjoy life. Don't suppress your inner urges. That's the same as telling us to be enslaved by the fallen nature. Verse seven, A: He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus used that phrase in the Gospels, Matthew 11:15, and it comes actually from Isaiah six, nine and 10. And I've come to understand it in a whole new light. Some people don't have an ear to hear. They have no desire to consider that they may be wrong. They've made up their mind and they don't want to be confused with the truth. They want to instruct you, but they never want to listen to your response. And when someone presents the facts and the word of God and you don't like it, be very careful. Examine your heart. See if you want to hear the truth. Discern if it's true or not by going to God's word, by getting godly counsel, and then surrender to the truth. Also, notice that we are to hear not just what the Spirit says to this church, but to the church as plural. Take each of these letters to heart. Hear the message in them. 7B to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Every one of these letters ends with a wonderful promise to the ones who overcome. And who are the overcomers? They are the ones who have an ear to hear the Spirit and to respond. Chapter 12, 11 tells us that the ones who overcome Satan do so by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives unto the death. That requires a passionate love for Jesus and what he's done for them. It's a love that puts him above all else. It sees him as the greatest desire that one could ever have, for he is the all in all. And for those who overcome whose actions are motivated by their passionate love for Jesus, he grants what Adam and Eve were kept from taking in their fallen state, the tree of life. He's the bread that came down from heaven. He's the one who asks us to partake of him. The living word will be our sustenance in the paradise of God. It's continual fellowship with him. Allow me to close by asking you In Jesus' stead, what he asked Peter, do you really love me? Is that love as passionate as the love you had at first? Or are you just doing the right things? If you've slid into dispassionate routine, you know what you need to do. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song and then I'll bring the benediction.